0: This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. For decades after the end of slavery, Black Americans lived under the constant threat of racist violence, not just from police, but from all white citizens, for real or perceived challenges to Jim Crow. Now, a new book shares the stories of some of those victims.
1: African Americans resisted Jim Crow. And sometimes their resistance was, they didn't say yes, sir. They just said yes. And for that, you could die
0: the author of By Hands Now Known, Jim Crow's Legal Executioners. Coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us.
2: Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student-athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism.
0: We were really protesting our
2: treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change.
0: Fighting for what we deserve.
2: Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
0: Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Many Americans would mark the murder of George Floyd as the turning point in how we as a nation view and discuss police violence targeting black folks. But for decades, murders by police or by white people who took it upon themselves to enforce white supremacy went largely unreported by the press and uninvestigated by authorities. Now, many of those stories are being widely told for the first time in a new book by hands now known, Jim Crow's legal executioners. The author is Margaret Burnham. She's a distinguished professor of law at Northeastern University and the founding director of its Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project. She was also appointed by President Biden to serve on the Civil Rights Cold Case Review Board. Professor Margaret Burnham joins us now. Welcome to a word.
1: Thank you so much, Jason.
0: This feeds into something that I've always thought about how this country works in general. But, like, what was the scope of violence that black people dealt with in this country in the first 30 to 40 years after the end of the Civil War?
1: We have collected over a thousand cases of uh, really brutal, gratuitous killings uh, during the Jim Crow period in the Deep South, in the states of the of the former Confederacy. And we've released all the documents that tell those stories in a new archive. Uh, it can be found by your listeners at crrjarchive.org. And the purpose for uh, gathering these materials together, organizing them, digitizing them, and now releasing them to the public is so that we can get a new reading of the Ways in which violence structured Jim Crow. Um, So our traditional view of Jim Crow is: yeah, Rosa Parks had to sit at, uh, had to defy um, bus uh, segregated bus transportation. Yeah, Emmett Till got killed. Uh, You know, we have these sort of iconic figures that shape our understanding of Jim Crow in African American communities. We widely circulate these. uh, how shall I? What shall I call them? Trope?s and, and you know, in in the academy, we'd call them tropes. That there are so many bodies in the river, or you know, you could get killed for anything. You know, we grew up with that. But you know, here we are. And we've documented it. And we've been able to show that, yes, indeed, you could wake up and go to work and not get back home. For failing to tip your hat uh, for a white man in a hotel, that's in the archive. For laughing on a line waiting for a movie, that's in the archive. For walking on the wrong side of the street, that's in the archive. For being a soldier trying to get home uh, back to your base on a bus and you know urging the bus driver to drive a little uh, faster, that's in the archive. The quality as much as the numbers give us a fuller story, a fuller picture of Jim Crow than we previously had, Jason.
0: So, how did this violence manifest? Because I think in a lot of ways in America our our perceptions of violence, all kinds of violence are are, are very sort of dramatic, right? We assume that um most murders occur in shootouts in the streets and they don't. We assume that Uh, sexual assaults or people jumping out of bushes and they're not we assume that you know all racial violence was you know 25 white people in a lynch mob and that's not really how it occurred in the case of jim crow violence was this was the man laughing in line was he just dragged out of line by random white people and beat right then and there while people were waiting uh was there was there a gap in time how how did the violence actually happen
1: We work in the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s. So by the time you get to the 1940s, the kind of spectacular lynchings that uh, we're accustomed to talking about and thinking about in our country, they begin to decline. But as a a well-known NAACP leader uh, said at the time, lynching is merely going underground. So it's really the violence that takes place in police, in the back of police uh, cars, the violence in police stations, um, that really begins to dominate the scene. The violence in buses uh, perpetrated by bus drivers, that really begins to characterize the relationship uh, between the enforcement of Jim Crow and African-Americans' experience with random, casual, humdrum violence. African-Americans resisted Jim Crow. And sometimes their resistance was they didn't say yes, sir. They just said yes, and for that you could die.
0: Early in the book, you recount an incident involving a woman named Ollie Hunter. Can you can you share with us that story? Because that's a that's a major one.
1: It's revealing. It tells us not just about violence, but also the ways in which women were equally vulnerable, equally exposed to this kind of violence. We found out about the Ollie Hunter case from a letter in the NAACP files in Washington, DC, written by a gentleman who lived in Donaldsonville, Georgia. And what the person said was that an elderly black woman had gone into a store on Main Street and picked up a can and uh, put it back down, been chastised by the storekeeper, a young white man who then chased her out of the store and beat her to death with an axe, and she died. And the name, Ollie Hunter, did not survive. It was only lifted up from the ashes of history when our students were able to match the timing uh, re- recorded in the letter with death certificates of elderly black women from Donaldsonville, Georgia. And we came up with Ollie Hunter, who in fact was about 60 years old. And so now, Jason, there are three documents that we've collected from uh, from Ollie Hunter case. One is the letter, 1940s era letter. The other is her birth certificate. And the third is a letter from a woman locked up in Florida who our students located, ancestry.com, and who says she is the descendant of Ollie Hunter. And there you have it, Jason, the old Jim Crow linked up to the new Jim Crow.
0: Since her name was lost to history, But we know this violence occurred. Obviously, there were no charges. There was no investigation. I mean, what happened to the white store owner? Because if you're walking back into a store with your smock covered in blood and an axe, I mean, did he just go right back to serving people and cooking meals? I mean, what the heck happens after these white people commit these acts of violence.
1: Well, the police fall in line, the uh, courts fall in line, the prosecutors all fall in line, and they render invisible the incident, which is what happened in the Hunter case. And the reason this man wrote to the NAACP is to avoid exactly that result. Uh, But nevertheless... The uh, Hunter case and many, many others like it um, disappear from the history books. And our effort is to retrieve as much as we can to be in touch with those relatives who are still alive and who still have their own memories of their loved ones and who still have uh, family history passed down from generation to generation about what they endured.
0: We're going to take a short break and we come back more from Professor Margaret Burnham, author of By Hands Now Known Jim Crow's Legal Executioners. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. I have a special announcement for you today. For a limited time, you can get six months of Slate Plus for just $29. That's 50% off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, and Political Gab Fest. Slate's podcasts cover major news events, from elections, to social issues, to historic court decisions. Our shows also discuss what makes a song a smash, analyze what's going viral, and decode cultural mysteries. If we've become a part of your listening routines, we ask that you support our work by joining slate plus sign up for slate plus now at slate.com slash podcast slash a word to access all slates content and support our work again that's just $29 for six months through october 28th so sign up now at slate.com slash podcast slash
2: We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting
0: for what we deserve.
2: Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC
0: podcasts. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts and let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to a word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about the book by hands now known with author Margaret Burnham. Margaret, I'm going to ask you this because stories like this exist today in black families. So what were some of the impacts that you've seen? You know, was it depression? Was it just the loss of a breadwinner? Was it families breaking up? What's some of the impact of Jim Crow violence on how black families move forward?
1: You know, we've spoken to families who have said to us repeatedly, when we call them, I thought I'd never get this call. Because two things. Number one, they consider this to be their own personal history, their own family history. They don't think about it. They don't think about the the broader significance and impact of this history, or that the story belongs in the long archive of African-American and, indeed, American history. They don't see it that way. Uh, And also, Uh, They don't have all the details. We now have some tools that allow us to surface information. Now, the information is not always going to be true to the facts, but it it gives you some detail. The death certificate, the DOJ records, the FBI records, the local uh, coroner's report, all of that is more detailed than these family members have ever had. And so we partnered with them. And we said to them, look, you know what your loved ones have told you about the incident. We know what the government has recorded about it. We know what led us, uh, Thurgood Marshall wrote to the DOJ about this. Let's make a partnership here.
0: What kind of justice do these families want when you get in touch with them? Or do they consider justice to just be having the case sort of no longer be a cold case?
1: Jason, all of the above. So you know, there's a wide, there's a wide range of um, understandings, expressions, um, emotions in our community, and some folks do look for prosecution. One in one family, uh, Henry uh, Peg Gilbert family, uh, the family members differed as to what they wanted. This was a man who was killed. In Troop County, Georgia, uh had 100 acres of land, lost all his land, killed in a police station. And his mother, excuse me, his wife goes to collect the body. And what she says is all I could, all they gave me was a sag, uh, a sack of bones. That's what was left of her husband, tall, handsome farmer in Troop County, uh, successful farmer killed at a police station. And so when we interviewed those family members, some uh, wanted an apology, which they got from the sheriff of the county. One gentleman said to me, there's nothing you can do at this point. What about the lost wealth that we would have accumulated had my grandfather been able to continue on his hundred acres of land? Had he been able to pass it down to his loved ones as opposed to having it sold uh, for a nickel on the acre after he was dead and his family had to and disperse and run out of town. So you have a range of views of anger, of hurt, of sorrow, of regret, of let's put it behind us, of no, we're not going to put it behind us. All of that, all of that, Jason.
0: Part of what gets me also in those kinds of stories is the emotional and psychological trauma that, that the black family is left with, right? I mean, like having to stuff that down for generation after generation after generation and not talk about it, is huge. And, and this sort of idea of, you know, having these things revealed now probably has its own challenges to it. I, I, I got to ask this because this is the other thing that sort of occurred to me when I look at your book and, and doing this research. If there's an element to this that almost reminds me of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee uh, that you had in South Africa at the end of apartheid. For those who don't know, uh, there was a huge commission and they basically went through and tried to document um, as many atrocities as they could that occurred under the apartheid regime. And oftentimes it required people to, you know, come to the state capitol and confess what they did. Now, no one faced any consequences for it, but it was argued that, look, we can't prosecute everybody who did everything wrong, but at least we can get the truth out there and begin a process of being honest about how our country operates. Do you feel that in some respects your project is similar, that you're exposing what did occur in this country What no one has necessarily ever had to talk about before, but there's also occasionally a sense of like, but a lot of these people also aren't going to face consequences.
1: So great question, Jason. And particularly, I uh, was appointed by President Nelson Mandela to serve uh, on a commission that preceded the Truth and Reconciliation Commission our commission went all across Southern Africa, uh, identifying individuals who had uh, lost either property or lives uh, during the fight against apartheid uh, and documenting that material. The difference between my work there in 1991, 1992 uh, in Southern Africa and my work here is the distance in time. So, you know, in, in the Southern Africa work that leads up to the Truth Commission, the, the TRC uh, in South Africa, I'm dealing with events that occurred in the 1980s. The incidents were fresh, alive. The blood was still not dry. Not true here. Here we're going back in time to recoup and recover and remember a period that should have been investigated. In the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, so we have the, these decades, you know, the, that are layered on top of these events, and obviously affect memories, uh, re- result in the loss of documents, etc. Let me just—I want to say one other thing, Jason, because you raised the question of the psychological impact, uh, intergenerational psychological trauma of this. And I, here I want to mention the work of uh, w- uh, another colleague, Jeff Ward, who is at uh, Washington University. Uh, and who, with his friends and colleagues, sociologists and anthropologists, are trying to trace the relationship between uh, the uh, levels of violence in counties and the violence that impacts African American communities, both literal violence, physical violence, and other forms of violence that impact African American communities in those same counties. To be more specific, if we look at a county where that has a deep lynching history can we also say that that county has a has a history of uh, an unusual history of using the death penalty against african americans or of using corporal punishment so we you know we're trying obviously everybody knows it's common common knowledge in established science that the, what happened then affects our lived experiences today but that's a dotted line and there are scholars who are trying to tell us exactly how it is these patterns and habits are translated one generation to the next
0: we're going to take a short break and we come back more with margaret burnham author of by hands now known jim crow's legal executioners this is a word with jason johnson stay tuned you're listening to a word with jason johnson today we're talking about preserving the history of jim crow violence with professor margaret burnham so, so much of your work, it immerses you in stories of brutal racist violence, and in many cases, nothing close to justice ever happens. You're you're knee deep in these terrifying stories. What has it been like for you doing this kind of work, or what are some things that you had to do to keep yourself healthy and sane while being immersed in state-sponsored and vigilante white violence?
1: For me personally, uh, I'm shocked, repeatedly shocked, but. Uh, I just remind myself of what it must have been like to go through this. And I think about the chaos, the trauma, the storm, um, the invasion of family life, that this meant the complete upending of a family's life. As I think about what they went through, I figure, I'm just reviewing this stuff. I'm not going through it. It's what they went through that's really important here.
0: There's often a discussion uh, in the African-American community, sometimes online, sometimes in person, sometimes at dinner parties, of people saying, ah, man, you know, I'm tired of these movies about, about Jim Crow. I'm tired of these movies about black trauma and oppression. You've got this new movie Till coming out that talks about sort of the murder of Emmett Till. And yet I've always pushed back on these arguments, often saying like, we don't even have a lot of history of these things. Most people don't know how bad it was, how can you reject the few bits of pop culture that have been created to sort of remind us or inform us as to what the heck happened. From a popular culture perspective, where do you think the gaps are in how this era is presented?
1: As long as the pop culture hangs on just a few uh, well-known incidents, few well-known names, you know, the Black Black History Week names basically, We're not really servicing either our kids or ourselves. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, it's our history and it's our obligation to preserve it. May I say further that we did this primarily for the families and they're not tired of hearing about it. They haven't heard about it. Why did it take until 2007 for us to go back and take a look at this history? Why did it take so long? It is our history, not just the events. But the resistance, the ways in which our folk resisted this, is a critically important piece of our history that deserves to be recovered uh, and incorporated in our understandings of what our loved ones uh, experienced.
0: When you're working with students and they're immersed in this and they see that their George Floyd experience, that their uh, Atiana Jefferson experience that their Trayvon Martin experience isn't something new but is actually just a very public digitized extension of violence that has always been happening in this country how do you keep those kids motivated? How do you how do you talk to young college students or graduate students and say I know this may seem like this has been going on forever but this is the thing that's improved or this is how we keep this sort of history from occurring. What, what do you say to them that are just experiences for the first time as young people and may sort of leave this research feeling despondent or that we're in a never-ending cycle?
1: Well, because I think they do have to understand that um, this is about continuity, but it's equally or perhaps even more importantly about discontinuity. So I want them to reject the bent that's supposedly bending towards justice and fully understand the nature of the African-American experience in this country Uh, But I also want them to appreciate that they're in a different place, that they're not going to get killed for not um, saying sir to a white man. They're not going to get killed for failing to tip their hat. So the violence has continued. Uh, yes, but that it does take different forms uh, is—it's really, I think, it's really, really critically important to to appreciate that you know we can't get out of our time. Just as our forebears uh, who lived through Jim Crow or even further slavery, they couldn't get out of their time. We cannot get out of our time. You, but but even though none of us can, we have to live within our moment. We also have to appreciate as folks who are going to be here for a moment what the other earlier moments were all about, that we're part of that train, we're part of that pathway, that uh, we're part of the African-American archive, and we want to appreciate every single aspect of it, and that's what I tell our kids, both African-American kids and who, folks who, well, who have a different cultural experience. In order to understand this country, they all need to understand that.
0: Professor Margaret Burnham is the author of By Hands Now Known, Jim Crow's Legal Executioners. Thank you so much for joining us on A Word.
1: Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.
0: And that's a word for this week. The show's email is at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word.